Clostridium difficile, C. diff, toxic megacolon, pseudomembranous colitis. This is definitely not a rose by another name. For those of you who feel you should know all you can about the enemy, stay tuned. You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. Today, our guest is Dr. L. Clifford McDonald, a medical epidemiologist in the Epidemiology and Laboratory Branch, Division of Health Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control. He has investigated Clostridia difficile outbreaks and written extensively on the subject. Welcome, Dr. McDonald. Thank you. Well, I'd like to go over the uh, biology of Clostridium difficile. When was it first discovered? When was it recognized as a unique bacteria? It was discovered in the 1930s and originally titled Bacillus difficile. It was called difficile because it was difficult to grow. It wasn't really linked with human disease, though, until the late 1970s when uh, the uh, cause of colitis associated with antibiotic use, in fact, called one time clindamycin-associated colitis, the cause of that was determined to be this uh, Clostridium difficile. And what is the uh, bacteria? Uh, is there any way to describe it? How does it Yes, do? it's an anaerobic, meaning it will not grow in the presence of oxygen. It's spore-forming, uh, which means that uh, it's more difficult to eradicate it completely when it goes into its spore form, especially important in terms of trying to clean it from the environment at times. And it's a bacillus, so it's a rod-shaped organism, so an anaerobic uh, spore-forming bacillus. How long can the spores last? Well, they can actually last months even. Uh, it's been shown that they've been found in especially healthcare hospital environments where you have a lot of people who have the disease and the environment can, can become contaminated. And this has been certainly a concern in terms of how it spreads in the hospital. But even then, probably just wiping the surfaces gets rid of it lots of times. And even though the environment is probably more important with this organism than, than most other organisms we're concerned about in the hospitals, it's still probably the hands of healthcare workers that are the final link of transmitting it from patient to patient. So normal hand washing can actually reduce the transmission? Yes. You know, there's that old adage, dilution is the solution to pollution, just washing things off. And, and soap and water is shown to remove these spores from the hands. There has been concern certainly with the alcohol gels that we know the alcohol doesn't kill the spores, but we don't think that alcohol gels is, is that important in the overall transmission that we're seeing uh, certainly when people are known to have C. difficile, we recommend they actually wear gloves. And in those instances, the gloves are probably doing the lion's share of protecting the hands of healthcare workers. But good old soap and water does get rid of the spores. And, and some studies have even suggested the alcohol might do something also. Maybe it just redistributes the spores or maybe also some of the what we call the vegetative bacteria also uh, are killed. The, those are the actively growing form. They're certainly killed uh, with the alcohol. What about heat? The spores are more heat-resistant than uh, vegetative bacteria in general. In fact, it takes quite an extended period of time. Uh, there's two major ways of, of isolating C. difficile from the stool of patients for a microbial culture. One is actually mixing the stool with equal parts of alcohol, and you basically kill all the other actively growing bacteria and leave the spores behind. The other way is heat shock, uh, where you keep them at a high temperature, like 90 degrees centigrade, for 10 minutes, and that does not kill these spores. So it is relatively heat-resistant. But it sounds like normal sterilization, uh, which reaches higher temperatures for longer, will do the job. Correct, correct. In fact, one of the main ways we uh, certify that autoclaves are doing their job is with bacillus spores and showing that it kills those spores. 
Although I understand this is a different uh, species. This isn't bacillus. Yeah, no, this is not bacillus. This is clostridium. But my point is just that spores in general are pretty hardy, but autoclaving certainly takes care of them. Is clostridium difficile a normal inhabitant of the GI tract, or is it always represented an infection? Well, it, uh, it's not totally clear exactly how common it is now, but historically studies have always shown that it's less than 5% of the healthy population are colonized. And in fact, even in those patients, it might just be passing through. So probably the biggest reason why we don't, although we're exposed to it lots of times, and certainly healthcare workers are exposed to it a lot, we don't get sick with it. We also don't really become heavily colonized with it. And a lot of that is because we have our normal healthy bacterial flora that sort of crowds it out. So I think that is a lead into my next question. If it is relatively common, how does it cause disease? Well, there's two big, well, there's probably more than this, but two that we understand main host defense mechanisms uh, normally. One is having a normal healthy bowel flora, as I've mentioned already, that in most cases when we ingest C. difficile, it does not even colonize us, um, much less cause infection. But the person who has their normal healthy lower intestinal flora altered or perturbed through antibiotic use most commonly, they are at increased risk, both for colonization, uh, in other words, being able to culture the organism from their stool over time, and actually developing disease. Um, So that's one big thing that happens. The other one is the immune system. Uh, Over half of us have low levels of antibodies to the main toxins that that cause the disease, toxins A and B, and it's thought that these antibodies are protective against us actually getting the disease. Probably what happens to us, you know, even when we take antibiotics, we might get exposed to C. difficile. If we're young and healthy, the perturbed uh, lower GI flora and the exposure to C. difficile, we don't get disease. Instead, what happens is our antibody levels seem to boost up. What happens, of course, though, with age is that immune responsiveness decreases, and that might have a lot to do with the fact that we see much higher rates in those persons over 65 years of age. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We're discussing the biology of Clostridium difficile infections. Our guest today is Dr. L. Clifford McDonald, an epidemiologist with the CDC who has written extensively on C. diff. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. I think you said something that uh, I think is worth a take-home message because I certainly misunderstood this. C. diff is not really necessarily a normal pathogen in the GI tract. It is perhaps a relatively common one in that perhaps 5% of the population might be colonized at any one time. But most of the time, it's just, quote-unquote, passing through. It causes disease. First, you have to actually get it. And secondly, then there has to be some other host factor that results in disease. Is that a a fair summary? That's an important point and a good summary. Um, We think it really is the recent new exposure to C. difficile at a time that you're vulnerable that results in C. difficile disease. Um, You sort of touched on it. that probably C. difficile is passing through um, the population at different times. It doesn't even colonize us uh, because of all the normal healthy bacteria in our lower intestine. Uh, But when 
we get newly exposed to C. difficile again at a time that our uh, lower G intestinal flora is perturbed or, or disrupted because of antibiotic use usually, uh, that's when we get C. difficile disease. We don't know exactly what the incubation period is, but it does seem to be new acquisition. Some studies have suggested less than seven days between a new exposure to C. difficile and them developing disease. That all sort of points back to um, the fact that when people go in the hospital, they get antibiotics and they get um, C. C. difficile disease, it's usually because of the new acquisition of C. difficile or new exposure to C. difficile. You said the uh, incubation period could be seven days? could be less than seven days. A couple studies have shown where they did serial culturing in people who came into the hospital. Uh, interestingly, first of all, people who came into the hospital already colonized uh, or apparently, you know, C. diff positive in their stool, they tended uh, not have to, they tended to have a lower risk going forward of getting C. difficile during their stay at that point. And that, in other studies, it's been shown that that correlates with them having a boost in their antibodies that I talked about before. Uh, a boost in their antibody levels to toxin A and B. But then those serial culturing studies, then the people who start out at day zero uh, with no C. difficile recoverable from their stool and they culture it every seven days, usually the development of C. difficile disease occurred with a previously negative culture, if you understand that right. So they, they were culturing them every seven days, no C. difficile then they develop diarrhea, and so suggesting again that the incubation period appears less than seven days in those studies. We're starting to question whether that it may not be always that tight. You know, nothing in science and biology is is that uniform, and probably there are some people that it goes out a little bit farther. At least recently, we're starting to see that a lot of people, after they leave the hospital for the next several weeks, they seem to be very at increased risk for C. difficile disease. Some of that could be that that maybe they do pick it up in their hospital and they go home and, and, and develop the disease. We're not quite sure. Well, I think this is actually a very important clinical take-home point just from the biology of the disease. To summarize, uh, the incubation period presumably can be as long as seven days, although empirically it sounds like there's disease noted even after this. What this means practically, though, is that if people are in the hospital only for a few days of antibiotic treatment, they can develop the disease after discharge. Right, right. I think what we're saying is the incubation period could be less than seven days out to maybe a couple of weeks or several weeks, but not like the weeks to months to even longer that you'll see sometimes with other healthcare-associated pathogens, say MRSA, where someone can be walking around colonized for, for months, you know, or VRE or something like that. Uh, this is something that's more of a recent thing within a couple of weeks at most that points again towards the importance of trying to prevent transmission uh, among patients who are most vulnerable. But it also points to the fact that it might be important to counsel patients to watch for diarrhea oh, yeah. because it certainly uh, can frequently develop after discharge when the patient assumes that all is well. Right. Both are true, very much so. Uh, briefly, how does toxin A and toxin B uh, cause their ill effects? Well, uh, they both have some cytopathic effect and one with more of an enteropathic effect, enterotoxic effects. But they basically are produced in high quantities when the organism gets established in its niche in the large intestine. And they actually work on the cellular level at the cytoskeleton, the actin, and monofilaments within the cells and cause a disruption of the tight junctions between the enterocytes and then lead to the pseudomembrane formation, which is really just the denuded enterocytes and mucin-producing cells 
basically the whole architecture of the, the deep crypts is lost, and all those cells and then all the white blood cells, they're, they're very potent chemotaxis stimulants and bring in a lot of white blood cells. You'll see a lot of uh, cellular debris in that pseudomembrane. That's really what it is, is, is mucin and, and cellular debris, and that causes that histopathology, which is really almost pathognomonic, distinguishing for C. difficile colitis is the pseudomembranous colitis. Isn't that only visible on uh, colonoscopy, though? Yeah, that can be visible on colonoscopy or on histopathology, but basically if you see the characteristic pseudomembranes on colonoscopy or on histopathology, that that's also you know gives you the diagnosis. The most common way we diagnose it, though, is to find levels of free toxin uh, A and B and or B in the stool using uh, uh, cytotoxin assays or um, uh, enzyme immunoassays. I want to thank Dr. L. Clifford McDonald from the CDC, who has been our guest. We have been discussing the biology of Clostridium difficile. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We would really like to hear from you. For comments and questions about this program or suggestions for other shows, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Also, please visit us at reachmd.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Be safe. Be informed. Thank you for listening.